Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today I'm talking to Suzanne and I'm so excited she's taking the time. We met five years ago and she's such an incredible operator and board member. She started her career in buying, quickly advancing into senior management and becoming MD at TK Maxx and chief operating officer at the Supergroup. She then switched from operator to non-executive director and has been on the boards of Made.com, Morrison's, Outfittery and 10 others giving her such an amazing opportunity to learn about both scale-ups and big corporates. Today, we talk about what makes a good board good, what she has learned on her 30-plus year leadership journey, and what advice she has to share. Suzanne, I, I love your CV, you know, moving from operator to being a non-executive at so many companies. But before we delve into this, I would love to hear where you grew up and how growing up was like? Sure. Well, I was born in Denmark and I lived there for the first 20 years of my life and was born in a, uh, a town sort of in southern Denmark, a place called Sweden. Uh, sorry, place, let's try again. A place <laughs> called Svenborg, not Sweden, which is not a province of Denmark, although I'm sure the Danes would, would argue that it is. <laughs> But no, I, I was brought up in Svenborg, which is a southern town in Denmark. It's it's a community where sailing and boating is, is very popular. We call it the Thousand Island Seas. It's a very beautiful and picturesque part of Denmark. And uh, it was a very kind and nurturing part of Denmark to grow up in, sort of mid-size, comparable perhaps to Southampton here the, in the UK. Yes, that's where I grew up. I was fortunate enough to go on holidays in Denmark when I was a child and it's, I mean, so picturesque and gorgeous. And how was, how was your family like, your parents, what kind of influenced you until today? So I grew up with two sisters younger than I, um, both severely autistic and inevitably that had quite a big impact on, on our family, both my immediate family and, and the more extended family. And so my mother was very much at home caring for my sisters and um, my father was an engineer and sort of was very much part of that early early play within the plastics industry, which of course today we all have big concerns over, uh, but which back in the 60s was sort of the new frontier. Mm -hmm. um, and we therefore moved around quite a lot. He worked internationally, as in probably pan-European mostly. And so there was a lot of travel involved. Um, and as I say, we moved around a little bit. And my father was uh, quite an extraordinary man. He worked incredibly hard and had great reach in respect of his industry. 
uh, and ultimately ended up running a few and always had some, you know, some, some fairly, I guess, impactful words, um, which he shared with me as I grew up. So he was a very big role model for me uh, when it came to, came to my own professional life. And my mother, I guess, the sheer resilience required uh, mm. to bring up two young girls who are, you know, absolutely delightful, but require an awful lot of, of looking after. Um, mm. it, it, it took it, it's, it's been a lifetime's, a lifetime's effort and, and care. So they both proved, I guess, role models in, in very different ways. If you think about your values or principles today, like how do you think did it shape you? Like which ones of, you know, if you describe who Suzanne Given is today, you know, which ones directly linked to that upbringing? Um, I guess I've always been very hardworking. Um, my father very much sets, I guess, um, sits out that from an early age, refused to employ me, always told me that I had to find my own way, uh, <laughs> ultimately resulting in me. I think my first proper job was working in a big industrial uh, laundry factory, which wasn't too far from home because he refused to give me a summer job. Um, <laughs> and I, actually, that's not correct. The first one was working for a big industrial nursery And I would weed and weed and weed amongst <laughs> all of their commercially grown uh, rows of plants and trees um, mm. in the summer holidays. So you know, I think that sort of that absolute commitment to working, standing on your two feet, finding your own way, paving your own way, if you like, is something he very much ingrained in me from a, from a very early age. And when, if I ever questioned him as to why he wouldn't help me and support me with, with getting a job in, in one of his own businesses, um, he, would, he would say something which has stayed with me, really. Do not work for or employ family and friends because they are too important to you in life and you don't want to fall out with them because of work issues. Um, mm. And so no, he, he was very informative in, in the way I set about working. And so I would say that that's a big part of who I am. I think my mother's resilience is another part. Um, I have watched her uh, over the years uh, doggedly uh, continuing to support two young women who perhaps were always going to struggle very, very seriously in life. And so I think resilience is probably another piece that I would say that I take from, from one of my parents. And they're probably, they're probably the two, the two biggest parts of my character that I would call out. Thank you for sharing. And then, so you spent the first 20 years in Denmark. How did you then go to the UK? That's a bit of a sore point. Even today with my father, I had started at Olberg University. I had very good grades. So I could have gone anywhere. Olberg University back in uh, 1983 was a brand new university and it was also a, a very left-wing leaning university. Mm -hmm. And I guess with my upbringing, um, I wasn't naturally left-leaning, certainly not at the time. And therefore, studying economics became a little bit Uh, frustrating quite early on. And so I asked my father if I could come out after six months and then start at Aarhus University instead, which is the second largest city in Denmark, and perhaps go to England for six months and improve my English language and fluency, which he actually thought was a really great idea. Um, and off I went. And of course, I never returned. <laughs> um, and so even today, I've just been home. In fact, this weekend, you know, it will still come up. 
you know, you never came back. You didn't finish your Danish wow. education. Uh, he's still very frustrated with that. Um, wow. I, guess, I guess he's allowed to be. What made you stay? Um, I think Timo coming from a provincial town in Denmark to London in the mid eighties and being a very naturally curious and expansive person, it was just irresistible. Um, mm. I just, I found the city then as I do now, utterly charming, engaging. I felt it to be incredibly diverse. It just had a, an energy and a vibrancy, which I, I simply, I couldn't resist. And I think London still has that. I think London is, and I'm sure that I'm biased when I say this, but I do travel and work in many different cities around the world. London is without a doubt, one of the, if not the most integrated, mm -hmm. diverse, high energy cities of the world. Um, I, I love this city. And I did then, and that is why I, I decided not to go back to Denmark. Very similar for me. Uh, I haven't sure. been in this country for such a long time, but for kind of 13 years, I've got a British passport and it's such an yes. amazing place from a diversity perspective, inclusion, skills and vibrancy. And I, I completely agree. And so what was your first job then in the UK? So in the UK, I... I literally walked in to the Connaught Rooms, which is a big conference center in Covent Garden just after a couple of months after arriving here. I was knocking on doors to find myself a job and they were hosting at that time. They were just about to start hosting the G5, as it was called in those days. <laughs> um, and when they when when I saw the sort of front desk manager, he sort of said, do you speak German? I said, I do speak German uh, fluently. I said, yes, I speak German fluently. And he said, oh, we'll come and see our, our back office manager. And a long story short, they made me the dedicated assistant to Chancellor Call, wow. who, who of course was there, uh, a great, a bigger than life uh, personality, wonderful man, absolutely wonderful man. And so I um, spent over a week just literally running after him and supporting him on everything he needed and wanted. And what that sounds glamorous, but actually it was, it was taking <laughs> photocopies, sending faxes and just making sure that his day went really well. So super exciting. Um, and after that, they took me on into the back office and I worked there for a while. And then I went to work for a, um, a lawyer's office up in Park Lane. So yes, as I guess some, somehow these journeys do, they sort of start off randomly um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and ultimately eventually landed me in the, in the consumer and retail space. And how, how was that like in the, in the 90s? It was a different world, of course. Um, I call it Gen 1 of, of consumer, mm -hmm. where, we, where we, we put products into stores and we, we thought we knew what customers wanted. And if not, we certainly told them that this is what they should want. And the biggest part in those days was about creating an ambience and a, and a physical space, which was attractive to customers, very much around key messages around price, so very much the physical landscape. And I started as a, as a buyer's assistant, became a junior buyer, then a buyer, and then a senior buyer, and, and so on. Um, so it was sort of a classic work your way up through the ranks uh, into general management um, and then into the executive 
uh, role. It's been a fantastic industry for me. I have enjoyed it very much and continue to do so, but have watched how we've gone from that generation one, if you like, through to what I perceive today to be the fourth generation, where it really is uh, uh, and the, the new economy, uh, which sits around digi- digital commerce and digital consumer profiling and digital marketing. Um, so it's been a, a privilege to have worked my way through, if you like, almost three decades of that and um, and see it still evolving today. And of course, you, Timo, uh, you are a wonderful example of what that looks like. And so it's a very exciting time. It's a very exciting era. Uh, we're crossing over from the old economy into the new economy with all of the, the challenges that come with that. Um, but super exciting. And before we go into this, just focusing on you. So you joined as a, as a junior buyer, you became a yeah. senior buyer, you became senior management, you made it to managing director. Like, What did you learn about yourself during that leadership journey? Um, I think... I guess when I go back to the time when I became, when I went from being a senior buyer to becoming general management, it's probably hard for for many to grasp how you as a woman in those days uh, Mm. felt under huge pressure to over-deliver and maybe perhaps, I think inevitably you were less authentic because you, you had this cloak effectively that you had to wear every day to make sure that there were no chinks in the armor uh, because as a woman you really had to deliver 120 percent to be considered and and i would say that journey of always being super careful and conscious around how you were presenting and how you were operating to perhaps getting to a general management role and and then into the md role at a time where things began to change and as a as a female perhaps it wasn't entirely an equal pitch but certainly things became much easier i think i would say as a professional going through that journey and dropping that historical uni- uniform that you were wearing as a, as a woman and becoming more authentic was a really big part of my personal professional journey most definitely and I guess the other piece is the journey you have to go on to be to be successful as an executive. And certainly when you then start talking about crossing over into the non-executive space, that piece of moving, moving from uh, setting out instructions and creating solutions to instead influencing and coaching people so they find mm. their own answers and solutions, you know, that that's quite a that's quite a journey. Um, that we all have to go on at some stage. And certainly for me, going into the general management role that I did at Harrods uh, was a really important time for me of actually creating that shift in how I thought about the business and my ability to influence it effectively through others. And so a really important part of, of my personal journey. Was there some kind of epiphany or or story you can share that that made you really realize, you know, I can't just tell people what to do. I need to focus on their development, ask questions, shift from being direct mm. to non-direct. Was there a particular trigger point? Yes, I think I think having arrived at uh, Harrods and being dropped into a general management role really quite early on in my career, 
I had to upgrade, if you like, or upgrade is <laughs> create a higher capacity team. Mm-hmm. Um, and going into the marketplace and finding those candidates, I, I really had a very strong sense of sitting in front of candidates who I felt were outstanding and realizing that for that person to come on board and work for me, first of all, I had to give them enough room mm-hmm. and create enough enough vacuum for them to exist in. And I needed to make sure that the tone of voice and the partnership, if you like, between me and these uh, much higher caliber individuals was of a very different caliber. And so I think that was a bit of a, a crystallizing moment for me, understanding that if you want high caliber individuals who can bring the right level of capacity and upside into an organization, it means that the whole organization, including the person leading it, also have to step up and create the right dialogue and create the right the right mandates for everybody to work towards and within. So, so I think that whole recruitment process was was really important. It was a bit of a um, a pivotal moment, if you like. And then you worked at Supergroup, John Lewis, TK Maxx, uh, Harrods, Homebase, House of Fraser. I'm sure I missed a few. But what is what is kind of the the cultural aspect that you found really appealing? You know, maybe some of these companies got it right, some got it wrong. But kind of what was your sense after these um, seeing these cultures? What 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 mm. would you define as a great culture? It's an interesting question, that one, Timo, because I, I can genuinely hand on heart say that I've loved all the businesses I've worked with. I think what is what what's perhaps more important is to understand the relationship between the culture in a business, how the culture has come about and what the key components behind the culture are, mm-hmm. or if you like the key drivers. But but it has to be contextualized against a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, because even businesses with great cultures and great cultural drivers or individuals behind them can find themselves in a moment of time where external pressures or investor pressures or whatever it might be make it very difficult for the organization to live up to that culture and those standards. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I always, whenever I look at a, a candidate, for instance, and they talk about about this topic and they talk about the place they, they most enjoy t- to work. When I ask that question, I always ask it in quite a, a detailed manner. I ask them to think about a situation where perhaps everything came together. Because you can be very talented, but you can find yourself in a business that's under so much stress. Or you could find yourself working for a manager who perhaps wasn't perfectly aligned with the culture of a business, but turned out to be your manager and therefore made it difficult for you to adapt to that culture. So, you know, this is culture is a is a is a really important question, but understanding where the the business in question was at a point in time is also really important, Simo. And so I think when I look back, back at the businesses that I have worked for, House of Fraser at the time was a PLC. The CEO um, was an extremely well-respected and charismatic CEO who was very engaged with the business and the team, completely preoccupied with culture in a very conscious manner. It was a great experience. 
if I think of Harrods, Mohammed al-Fayed set the tone of the whole business. And some people found it really tough to work for Mohammed. I didn't. And so it really does depend on the business at a certain point in, in at, at the particular point that you're in that business. Mm. TK Maxx, when I was working there, was headed up in Europe by Paul Swedenham. A really strong character, uh, very charismatic, really ambitious in his thinking, great energy, really drove the whole organization very strongly with a with a single person's view and voice but at the same time very proactive in making sure that he was driving the development agenda for everybody in the company and was very supportive of women for instance um so every business has a different type of leader and you will either fit in really well with that culture mm. or you won't fit in really well with that culture depending many times on how flexible you are yourself as an individual. Yeah, I think that's a powerful point. And then let's let's shift. So you you've accomplished so much in your executive career. One day you decide to become a non-executive director. Like walk me through the the thought process and how did you mm. find the experience of shifting? The reason for shifting into non-exec work initially was uh, for family reasons. I needed to create more flexibility for my family at a time where I was looking for my next executive role. And I decided that my family had to take priority. And I thought I would probably come out for two or three years as a non-exec. And because of that, um, sorry, so two, three years and then go back into to an executive role following that. And because I saw it as a a two to three year project, I decided that rather than go and sit on other retailers' boards, I would go quite broad in my portfolio and try and get some experiences which would add some added learning and value that I could take back into my uh, executive path subsequently. Hence, I sat on the board of Tritax, Big Box, Real Estate Investment Trust, PLC, um, to really understand how the these big real estate investment funds look at their clients and what type of arrangements they create with them, because I felt that would be really useful when I would return to my executive career. Long story short, I didn't go back to my executive <laughs> career because I thoroughly enjoyed being an non-executive. Executive, and in fact, I think you're right. Um, you and I met quite quite early on at that time, and I think the sometimes timing has something to do with that. I went into my non-executive uh, career at a time where the diversity drive for British boards, particularly listed boards, became a very, very big agenda point. And therefore, I was exposed to opportunities which um, I perhaps wouldn't have exposed to if it had been five years earlier. And on that journey, I have been fortunate enough to sit on the boards of some extraordinary businesses, and I have enjoyed it. Uh, I have also had the privilege to work with early stage and mid stage fast growth businesses, uh, in some cases, disrupting early stage businesses. And that has been enormously motivating and exciting. And so, hence, I have now firmly committed myself to the non-executive path. Uh, it's been six years now, and um, and it's been it's been a joy. What particular is exciting to you? It is the piece of defining the role the board has, mm -hmm. 
making sure the board really understands what its role is, contracting with the executive team what it is that they need from the board and and also with the owners of the business. And so sitting, if you like, in the middle of all of the main and key stakeholders of an organization and forging a contract as to how can the board and the chairman be particularly useful for both investors and executive. That's the bit that I really enjoy. Um, I enjoy the part of that conversation that is all about how do we strategically drive this business forward? What's everybody's desire or vision for this business? And knitting that into a joint statement, if you like, and a joint Mm. vision. And then becoming the enabler for the executive team in that process. That's what I love about being a non-executive. Oh, it makes sense, yeah. And so what, like given you've seen so many boards, I think I'm literally counting more than 10 on your CV, but what, yeah. what makes a good board a good board? I think a good board is where you have First of all, a chair who is independent, that I have very strong views on this. I think an independent chair is is what creates a good board. And by that, I mean a chair who is not feeling obligated to any one stakeholder, be that a majority shareholder, be that a controlling founder shareholder, but somebody, a chair who comes with an independent mindset. I think that's that's one of the key drivers of great boards. Board members who actively contribute, not board members who perhaps have a passive perspective um, and turn up for board meetings and very little else. So mm-hmm. actively engaged board members who have a passion for the executive team, for the senior leadership team, for the other board members, and who really enjoy being part of the business, both during good times and bad times. So active non-executive board members uh, around a really strong and independent chair, that's where I believe you you end up with, with a really good and strong board. And on a no-name basis, can you share any experiences where you've seen boards not perform so well and what are kind of the commonality topics that create um, you know, misalignment or dysfunction? I think, I think I have seen situations, I guess, over the years where perhaps a chairman or chairwoman has become too close with certain investors or indeed with founders or chief executives. And so that real independent tone of voice can be compromised a little or much. I have seen situations where non-executive directors have started moving together and making it difficult for the board to operate effectively because you've ended up with uh, certain groups around the table always aligning and not always well with others. And so again, going back to the earlier point, that's why having a very independent chair who is very quickly delving into these types of issues, super important. I have seen situations, I guess, where you have a, in privately owned companies where you have a set of investors and a number of board members uh, where you have various investment directors who struggle to 
find a common route forward uh, for businesses that are requiring finance for the simple reason that they have arrived at different stages. And so there are, you know, there are complexities, Timo. It, it isn't a straight, it's not a straight line with these things. Um, mm. And board effectiveness is not, is not a straight line, but it really does come back to the chair to, uh, to manage that and help everybody get back onto the same, the same pitch and, and make sure that everybody's in, in a position to be of a compromising mind as much as they need to be to make sure that everybody can align around the purpose of the business and the board. And I mean, you sit on so many different types of boards. If you contrast on one hand, made.com and Outfittery, you know, two scale-ups versus, for example, a Morrison's yes. where you've been on the board until recently, I assume. How are the, the dynamics different? So the similarities are that if you're lucky, you're sitting at a board table with some people you really enjoy meeting with. Mm -hmm. And that would be the same for all those three businesses. I thoroughly enjoy my colleagues at Made, at Adfitry and Morrison's. Brilliant people, highly capable. So that's a real joy. Um, they differ in the context of the level of governance matter that they have to address through the board meetings. They differ in terms of the focus when it comes to the, the investment cycle. And I guess inevitably, when you're running a business that employs over 100,000 people, the people matters and operational matters within a Morrison's will have a different weight uh, and, and potential impact on the bottom line. Mm. Um, and therefore, the level of preciseness that you have to be operating under is very different from a scale up where you cannot with great clarity always predict the outcome over the next, let's say, six or 12 months. So it, it is about the, the level of detail and commitments you have to make in larger established organizations versus scale ups where you have to have, I would say, more trust and you have to have more scenarios and you have to create more flexibility within your plans to take into account very diverse outcomes. So they are fundamentally very different businesses in the way they operate. And again, on a no-name basis, would you be able to talk or tell any stories of things not going so well and then how the board kind of behaved? How, oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always nervous about the team. Um, I'm not sure that I've had a particular scenario where there's been a lack of, a critical lack of growth, but I've certainly had situations where growth has over overshot even the ambitious outlook <laughs> and the level of commitment that had to be put in there for to support that growth um, can also cause problems as i'm sure you will you will know <laughs> familiar um, yes yeah. exactly and and that that can you know sometimes pitch investors against investors and and sometimes you can see some not so constructive behavior and and that can affect a founder you found a ceo um, and a team executive team quite uh, quite badly actually because you are you're you're doing really well you've set out a plan you've beaten it you've beaten it significantly and then you are, you come up against the wall and different problems and and if you feel as though your investors are not all aligning behind you with the right intent it can be extremely demotivating um so i it's fair to say that i i certainly have seen that 
without any names named. Yeah, no, I love this point. Um, somebody smart once told me that businesses don't die of starvation, um, they die of indigestion. And the yes. reference was towards misalignment between board shareholders and management, and particularly in scale-up land, yeah. where you've got early stage investors, late stage investors, um, exiting founders, and so on. Yeah. Um, emotions can be quite high. Yeah, They can get very, very, very high, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mean, any any difference, you know, you've, you've been on a board in Berlin, you've been on boards in, in I think, India, in the UK, any kind of, um, you know, interesting observations to share? I've been really lucky um, having sat on, on boards. I think you're humble. I think the companies have been really lucky. But, but yes, please continue. You're charming. Thank you. Having worked in the Middle East and India and, and a lot of work in the States over the years, and of course, pan-European. It's very exciting to be part of different territory cultures and how they default into certain behavior. And yes, and and what 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 has been surprising is perhaps the question: sitting on the border of Altai in the Middle East, uh, which is a privately owned conglomerate that have five very different uh, divisions below them, whether from healthcare to the automobile sector to consumer. It's fair to say that for me, the opportunity arose and the attraction was very much about getting to understand the Middle East better. Mm-hmm. And having sat on board for five years, that clearly was a, a, a wonderful experience. What was astonishing to me was the incredible professionalism, the outstanding organizational design, the way in which the businesses were managed from the group level all the way down, absolutely at the same level that you would find in the UK. I was delighted to to experience it. And having sat uh, on a board in India now on Trent Holdings for a year and having worked with them a year before that, the sponsoring shareholders, the Tata Group, they, mm-hmm. it was originally a Tata company before it was floated on the Indian Stock Exchange. And the chair of that business is Noel Tata. And so very much still within the Tata Group uh, fold, if you like. Uh, very similarly, incredibly f- professional. And so the thing that has, I guess, struck me over the years is, Again, it's the same thing, how much more we have in common than that which divide us. Um, and, and I would encourage anyone to seek opportunities on boards internationally. Yes, there are flavors of difference and you know there are elements that you need to grasp and get your head around. But in, the, in broad strokes, particularly when we're talking about larger scale organizations, which is what I've been involved with, um, they are, there's more in common than there is of difference. And it's a very exciting space to be, to watch these economies that are not as far ahead as we are in the fourth generation play, but they are catching up fast and the sheer energy and motivation and commitment to doing so, it's um, it's really interesting, really exciting. Yeah, I love your points. Um, I, I've been super privileged sitting on a couple of boards such as compare the markets you know they yes. have 10 million yes. customers in the uk what a unilever yes. digital advisory board which advises the main board on digital transformation and okay. and i agree i mean the learnings are so fantastic and then for you to take it back inside the organization is really remarkable yes. and i, I want to just ask two particular situations um obviously you know no specifics please but made.com recently decided to ipo and then at the 
same time, yeah. Morrison's decided to delist. Um, <laughs> and I'm just hugely fascinated by, I guess, the process around the decision making without going into any specifics. Of course, everything is confidential. But how, how does a yeah. good process look like to make these hugely uh, impactful decisions? Mm. Well, let's talk about Morrison's first, because, you know, very few public to private trans transactions the size of Morrison's take place. So, you know, they are fairly unique and there is no plan because you, you have a large global private equity group that has looked at your annual report and they've decided that actually there is a real opportunity to grab a hold of something which is um, is registered at a uh, an inferior value effectively and they can see how they can optimize that value and and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of activity around this particularly for US listed companies at the moment because they are undervalued mm -hmm. um, and so they make an offer they make an offer and this is not I'm not necessarily talking about Morrison's here but as as a more as a principle an external uh, private investor will say, we would like to buy your company. And this is the price that we would like to buy your company at. And, and that's really how it kicks off. And then there is a, an enormous amount of governance around it, as you can appreciate, which means that the board have to now operate uh, under absolute confidentiality and has to make certain public statements. It has to engage with its um, publicly listed Uh, shareholders, and it's an enormous process. Um, it's it's 7.30 a.m. calls uh, for six months, effectively. And if it goes the way the Morrison's situation went, you ultimately end up with the shareholder saying, okay, the price is now at such a level that we will agree to the company being sold. Mm -hmm. And so that is what happened. Um, now, with MADE, Made had taken in very little investment from its inception, so was an extremely well-run business and got to a scale where I guess setting out its opportunity in terms of scale became of such a size that it needed to have a different shareholder base, investor base, if you like. And we felt as a board that it was the right time to consider an IPO. And we, I guess, had, we had had conversations about that in the past and it hadn't felt like the right time. This year, it felt like the right time and the market's open to facilitate that. And as you remember, um, some very successful IPOs came out through the open window in the first quarter of this year. We came later, we came in the second quarter and, you know, the, the window, which was, opened at the very back end of last year is perhaps less open at this point, but still open. And so I think we, we have, we timed it, I think, well, and I think it was the right thing for the company. It now has access to the public markets in terms of future raises and therefore can build a much more ambitious plan ultimately. ultimately. And at this point in time, where there are very significant challenges at play following the pandemic, following stroke during the pandemic, it probably is a winner's market right now. And so to have a strong balance sheet and to have access to further capital raises certainly puts made in, in a good position, I would say. And maybe a bit of an unfair question, but when you look at the US market in the last I think five years, yeah. the Nasdaq has gone up by 3x. The yeah. FTSE has stayed flat. 
Like, to what extent does the UK market struggle to understand mm -hmm. technology-powered businesses? Is the market too cynical? Like, do you have any view on you know, what's yeah. what's going on here? I think it's a little bit related to the earlier point around we are exiting the old economy and we are entering the new economy. The old economy has been incredibly successful for everyone, including me personally, and the rearview mirror as I always say, has been very useful in the past. If you if you had a good level of experience, you could project that forward quite successfully and you'd sort of be able to navigate your business or investments really relatively well because most things were known. We're now moving into the, 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 the new economy and actually the rearview mirror simply isn't very useful any longer. And I guess for the big institutional investors, for the fund managers in question, they know that there is a new generation coming towards them. It is already here. We're at the foothills, but they have a huge amount of investment still locked into the old economy. I think because of the UK, um, it's been such a strong market historically, and we are more risk adverse here. The US just doesn't have the same risk adverse attitude, I would say more generally, and therefore they're much keener to push ahead with the new economy. That is clearly held by the fact that they have some of the world's biggest technology giants based in the US. So they got on that journey much earlier. And so it, it has created a different mindset. And we, we just haven't quite had that in Europe, let alone London. I think it's coming, but I think it's coming a little bit more slowly than certainly I had hoped. And I know my peers feel the same. We're still yo-yoing a bit here in Europe and in the UK around wanting to step into that new economy and really invest in it solidly and get behind it. But it is coming and you see signs of it all the time, Timo. I'm very glad um, you're positive and we will cross the chasm because, yeah, I mean, there are, when you just look at the market and how companies get treated and, you know, the ups and downs, it just feels like the risk appetite or the understanding, the relationship with risk is is very different here uh, compared to the US. But I love your positivity and, and outlook on it. And what is kind of the one piece of advice, you know, imagine I would become a board member or the chair of a board tomorrow. Like what, what advice would you give me? Make sure that you spend the appropriate amount of time getting to know the executive team, the senior leadership team and your fellow board members. Really get into the organization early, have a look at all of the different tangents of it. Make sure you have a really good comprehensive understanding of it and make sure that not just at the beginning, but throughout the journey that you are forging a strong relationship with the executive team. So you really understand what's going on in the business and how you can be of service to them. Mm -hmm. And does, does size matter? Like, I mean, I, mm -hmm. some people swear by boards of seven because it's very small. You can make it very intimate. Other people yeah. prefer a lot larger boards, making sure that all the committees um, are fully staffed. Do you have a perspective on size? It depends on the business, Timo. Um, I have sat on 
a board that was 24 men large. Um, and I've seen that board <laughs> and that business execute phenomenally well. Wow. Being a leader in its field. So, uh, you know, and I've seen similarly business with a, um, a five five man board operating extremely well. I, I genuinely think it, it depends on the type of business. It's very easy to end up with people around the table who perhaps had or did add value and who perhaps no, do not add as much value now. And that's where, you know, one has to be as, you know, exercise due diligence mm-hmm. and make sure that the, the fresh perspective, different tone of voice is allowed to enter the boardroom at the right time. And that does sometimes mean that we have to say goodbye to others. He's like, reading a book, there are chapters in the book where certain characters play a big role and then then they exit. It's not personal, it's about the configuration mm. and the skill set. And is there any diversity dimension that's underappreciated, i.e., I don't know, it's beneficial to have somebody aged 30 versus 70 uh, and having both would be good or, you know, is there any, are, are we too single-mindedly focusing on gender diversity in the UK? Are there other dimensions that, that have kind of astonished you in terms of potential? Yeah, I think when I go back to joining uh, Supergroup PLC, as it was called back then, back in 2012, the, the singular focus was around getting more females onto boards. I don't think that's the case today. I think the real desire and drive to get proper diversity onto boards is it is real it is happening mm. there is a, a real lack of pipeline to allow us to to be effective but you know everybody is preoccupied with making sure that that pipeline is strengthened and so i would say over the next five years i think it will become easier And of course, it goes way beyond just gender and your ethnicity to your point, age, do you have disability factors? You've got all sorts of other tangents here. Mm. Um, so I think in short, I think we've come a long way in the last 10 years. I think we will continue to evolve dramatically over the next 10. So I'm again, I'm very optimistic and positive around it, but we need to make sure that we're all focusing on creating a strong pi pipeline of candidates, because what you do need to make sure is that when you are creating that diversity, you are upholding the expectations around Uh, contribution standards, mm -hmm. the, the, the caliber, the relevancy and the contribution. And so, you know, getting that pipeline strengthened throughout all of the various businesses we're all involved with and getting people ready to make that step into non, to uh, non-executive roles. That's where we really have to focus and push. And I think it will all follow. I'm really glad that we're seeing progress and that you're optimistic. That's good. And then Suzanne, as a final question, what do you do to unwind? How do you spend your time? You're doing so many board meetings every week. Like what, what makes you happy? Oh my goodness. I try and run every other day and I swim every other day. So they're really good ways to just switch off big, long walks. I'm, I'm very much an outdoor person. And so I spend a lot of time doing that sort of thing, Timo. And every so often I'll go on a big adventure, climb Kilimanjaro or something like wow. that, um, just to, just to create some real peace and get away from, from the everyday and, and, and test myself a little bit against the environment. Um, but that's probably the way I, I relax, I would say. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing the last hour with me. Really, really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Timo. 